Welcome to Future of Tech, hosted by Avishai Sharlin, Division President of Amdocs Technology. In this podcast, Avishai sits down with some of the most innovative minds in technology to learn how they are disrupting the present and what kind of impact they hope to have in the future. From the machine learning programs that are solving some of the world's biggest problems to what AI can do to help fight biological bottlenecks in human thinking, no topic is off limits. So sit back, relax, and maybe take some notes because what you hear on this show might just be a glimpse into the future. Many of us have probably caught ourselves talking to the computer, perhaps sometimes even yelling at it. Now the computer can talk back. At first, that may seem daunting or even worrisome, but overall, it's a good thing because it's going to make our lives easier. Conversational AI has made great strides over the last 10 years. As proof, look no further than the applications in commerce, where many companies are already using chatbots. Despite these advancements though, there's still a long way to go to really get computers and people communicating effectively. On this episode of Future of Tech, Joe Bradley, Chief Scientist at LivePerson, discusses the current state of conversational AI, where the technology is heading, and the steps that need to be taken to get there. Joe explains how advances are being made in AI understanding language, as well as in dialogue management. He also shares how there's a lot of work to be done on the goal-oriented dialogue side of the technology and making sure bias is checked as systems are built. So what's the future of computers and people communicating? Find out on this episode. Future of Tech is brought to you by Amdocs Tech. Amdocs Tech is Amdocs's R&D and technology center, paving the way to a better connected future by creating open, innovative, best-in-class products and continuously evolving the way we work, learn, and live. To learn more about Amdocs, visit the Amdocs technology page on LinkedIn. Let me officially welcome uh, Joe Bradley, um, which is uh, into a new episode of the future of tech. Joe is the uh, current uh, chief scientist at LivePerson, and we're going to talk about LivePerson, AI and some other cool stuff. So welcome, Joe. Thanks. Delighted to be here. Usually we start, you know, with a kind of uh, a personal question. How did it all started? How did your journey engaging technology uh, started? Well, that is a that can be a long and many winding <laughs> story if we go too far back. Okay. Uh, it includes opera singing and physics and you know, the study of English literature and all sorts of things. But, you know, maybe the best place for me to start is I, I was a sort of physics, I was a physicist uh, working for one of the company's national laboratories for a number of years. And I, I've always been pretty excited uh, about mathematics, you know, even even though in the late 90s, as I was growing up, that, that wasn't super cool. Uh, and I struggled with it personally for a while to to enjoy my own passions. Eventually, uh, I couldn't fight it anymore. And I ended up a physicist, but uh, 
I got really interested in statistics and in machine learning in the process. Uh, and in e-commerce, there's obviously a lot going on in machine learning. So that, that led me to Amazon, uh, where I worked for a number of years as the lead targeting scientist for the Amazon ads platform, building machine learning platforms there, uh, and then eventually working on the Amazon search experience and really trying to understand how to personalize and evolve the experience of looking for the products that you want in a way that was the most effective. From there, I went on to Nike and spent several years there leading a functional data science team that served both the Nike brand marketing function and also the Nike applications and the sort of web properties and the machine learning there. That finally led me back. I got a call from my old boss at Amazon, Alex Spinelli, who's our CTO at LivePerson now. And, you know, I was, it was one of those calls where he was like, hey, I got something interesting I want to talk to you about. I'm like, I'm not sure I want to talk to you, Alex. I think I'm doing pretty good. But in the end, what LivePerson has to work with in terms of the data that is, you know, coming into the platform and in terms of the, the people actually that are engaged in the platform and can work to uh, can work with the data and can work to kind of train AI-based systems, uh, it was a really compelling opportunity. And, and we started together about three years ago, Alex and I, you know, trying to, uh, you know, take, take uh, this, this chat and messaging company and really, uh, really build it into a uh, kind of globally recognized AI organization. And, you know, we're still on that journey. We have, you know, the more people have heard of Apple than have heard of us. But I think we have a pretty compelling offering and, and uh, pretty proud of where we've come so far. Which is a good segue maybe to walk us through a bit about your, uh, what, what live person is all about, maybe in a few words, uh, what the company is doing, is doing. Yeah. So the basic mission of the company is to, you know, I would say it to essentially make consumers' lives a little bit better by improving how they communicate with the brands in their lives and, and helping them build you know, better, deeper, more helpful relationships with the brands that that they work with. Um, and the, you know, the way that's coming to life for us now is we think a lot about warming up commerce, right? So we have a platform that allows brands and consumers to talk to each other. And we want to help brands use that platform to provide, you know, not only an automated experience where necessary or an efficient experience from the brand's perspective, but really to help build a deeper connection with their customers and to help their customers get better service and, and have a better experience. You know, I read conversations that come through the platform from time to time to just try and understand how people are using messaging and, and chat in these contexts and, and what it means to them. And, and you find really some astounding things. Like one of my favorite examples is a woman who's talking to a, a major sporting apparel company uh, and she's talking about shopping, late Christmas shopping. She's a Christmas shopper, she, but she's late Christmas shopping for her eight grandkids and her two great grandkids. Yep. And that, to, this to me is like, this is what, what I spent time looking, these are the signals I spent time looking for at Amazon was to, to try and find, you know, who are the gift shoppers out there and how can we help them? And this stuff is, this is help that people want to ask to brands mm-hmm. and you know, they're, they're willing to talk about it. They're willing to use conversation to go and get it. So we see ourselves as, you know, trying to help the brands meet those needs and learn about their customers fundamentally. Got you. And um, what does a chief scientist do in such a company? So I have kind of a, a mixed role. 
you know, on the one hand, I lead a functional group of data scientists, right? So we, uh, we have uh, a number of, and they're largely language focused, though we have some more general data scientists as well that work on a, on a range of projects and on a range of products. Uh, and they'll, you know, kind of go out and come in to a different product at different times. Also, though, I lead a, you know, what we call single threaded organizations where we run pieces of the product ourselves and have engineering leaders and product leaders and engineering teams that are part of that. Uh, and so we, we tend to focus on the products that kind of meld the best with the language science, right? So we have uh, products that help you manage and understand your consumers' intents and preferences. Uh, and that's a, you know, that's a product that, that we kind of run on our own. We have text analytics-based products that we purvey and other kind of advanced quote-unquote analytics products. That and I sit on the executive leadership team for the company. So I get to um, look out, you know, kind of back up to the 50,000-foot view and, and think about how uh, and hopefully help shape how the company's strategy is evolving in the marketplace. Good. So we have a good head start. Now, explain to me. So we're speaking about something that you are framing as conversational AI. So give me a, maybe a use case or several use cases about what what is a conversational AI? Because, you know, I would like to make sure that I understand exactly what it is. Sure, sure, sure. Well, I think, you know, first of all, you're going to get slightly different answers from different people. But if I'll give you an abstract answer first, it's a system that you can talk to in your own natural language uh, and you can do something useful with. Or that I guess if you really want to go broad, that you can have a meaningful conversation with. What we focus on at Live Person you know, it's really around like goal-oriented dialogues, right? So dialogues where you're trying to solve a problem and that problem might be, you know, I want to change my password to my account or I want to, you know, book a reservation at a restaurant or I want to, you know, shop for a car. And so where these come to life, you know, oftentimes pretty imperfectly these days is in, you know, in a, an e-commerce context in the form of like a chatbot. This interaction also comes to life in your home in the form of uh, like an Alexa or a Google Home device or, or on your phone in the form of like a Siri. Now, these use cases are pretty different. You know, you, you know, people use sort of Google Home and Alexa for, for kind of different things than they use their Siri for. And definitely these are used for really different purposes today than, than you would use, you know, a, a virtual agent or a chatbot when talking to a company. But really anywhere you find yourself talking to a computer, whether it's in voice or in written text form, and the computer talking back is an example, you know, however perfect or imperfect of conversational AI. So there is no difference between a chatbot in, in terms of the definition or the actual implementation, or there are differences between a conversational AI algorithm or a function and, and a chatbot, or it's an equivalent, it's, an, it's, it's just a terminology issue. So, I mean, I guess it depends on the context a little bit, right? So if you want to talk about the field of conversational AI and you want to talk about the advances we're making in the field, then you're talking about research and science projects, right? Okay. Uh, if you want to talk about how conversational AI comes to life for customers, a chatbot is an example of, of how it does that. Clear. Now it's much clearer. Good. And, and where are the limits of, uh, th that you see in, in today's conversational AI? Yeah, I think this is one of these areas where we went through a pretty big hype cycle about three years ago when uh, there were a bunch of startup companies allowing, allowing brands to go and build chatbots and telling them, hey, you're going to be able to handle all your conversations 
uh, with all your customers on these things. Just give us six months and and help us tune it, and and we'll like all of a sudden you'll be able to you know scale your operations immensely. And we didn't see those promises come to life exactly. Uh, we saw, I think, in in cases where companies were really thoughtful and built carefully, we saw meaningful business impact. We've seen meaningful business impact over the last several years, but there was definitely a lot of snake oil in the industry. And, and the notion that conversational AI is at a place where there's there are systems out there that you can talk to about anything and you can solve real complex problems that are beyond simple sort of transactional interactions. You know, the, frankly, over the last few years, that, that notion has been overblown. Now, that, is, that isn't to say we haven't come a long way, and that isn't to say there, there's not a lot of business value here, because there is. But, you know, if you go and look at all of the major conversational AI-based systems that you can talk to in the world, almost without um, exception, the way their dialogues are handled, right, the way the computer decides what to say next in the kind of tree of choices you can make with it, is really a hard-coded set of rules. Now, there's a little bit of an adornment in some of these, you know, systems in in your home. For example, there's there's some what we call co-reference resolution. There's a little bit of probabilistic understanding here and there. But fundamentally, the dialogues that you have with computer systems today are dialogues that are had around a bunch of rules. You know, I say thing X, and then the computer knows it has to ask two questions to me and get two pieces of information out of me, and so I go down that tree in some order. Um, that's how these things work. So, you know, you can imagine if that's if that's your foundation, right? Humans, when we talk to each other, right, this is a it's a much more complex and dynamic interaction. And so teaching machines to speak effectively to people and to really help people cause problems, we're going to need to break that paradigm uh, and move way beyond it. And on the understanding piece of the puzzle, we've done a lot better, but that's a lot more of a confined problem space. So in a lot of ways, you can split up conversational AI into two pieces, understanding the natural language, it's called NLU, and then handling of the dialogue or dialogue management. The understanding of the natural language we've been working on, you know, well, we've been working on both for a long time, but we've been working on in terms of machine learning and AI, we've been advancing NLU for quite a while, um, really the last, I guess, about four or five years, we've made tremendous advancements using some uh, really big language models uh, built by companies like Google uh, and others. And so, so what I would say is computers are getting rapidly better and the techniques are getting rapidly better at understanding what the customer is saying in the first place or what a person is saying in the first place, I should say. The next big frontier for us is, okay, given that understanding, you know, how do you have more flexible dialogues that allow you to solve real complex problems? It's one thing to say like, hey, let me walk through a tree because I want to book, you know, a, a reservation at a restaurant for a given time. But it's another thing to talk to a computer and say, hey, I, I don't understand this charge on my telephone bill. Can you help me explain it? Right. And then to like, would, imagine doing that, you know, it's, it's the third line and it's for 37 cents. And, you know, it's got this weird code next to it. That's BP7194. Like, what does that mean? Right, we're nowhere near at this point the place where where you can have a, a very successful interaction with a computer with something that requires you know that much flexibility and communication. Yeah. So we got a long way to go, but we, it's you know we're we're sort of marching down the road. And from the complete other perspective, from a customer experience perspective, from the ones that are interfacing with the stuff that you are building, what are the lessons that you are taking? Are we more you know? Ready to use this technology? Are we, you know, 
let's say, more realistic, uh, immediately seeing what is in front of us and then skipping it? What's, what's the status from this perspective? Yeah, we're in a state where people don't know what to expect yet. And it's because the landscape is uneven, right? There are businesses out there doing great work, you know, allowing you to have an automated conversation that's successful and helpful to you. But people don't have a real good theory of mind about how these systems work is probably the way I'd say it. We did some qualitative research on this about a year and a half ago. Uh, and what we found is people largely fall into one of two camps, right? They'll either treat this thing like a search engine in the first place, right? And they'll say, you know, bill, bill question, right? They'll, they'll come with these like very sort of noun focused, like as if you were typing into a search engine, um, they'll, they'll come and type these things. Or, you know, which is not a very successful strategy, right? That if it were a search engine, you know, if it weren't more than a search engine, it would just be a search engine. So there's more functionality that, that it's hard, you can't really use that way. And it's not a delightful experience that way either, which is really what we want. Or people will come in kind of at the exact opposite end of the spectrum and they'll, they'll write like a, a mini treatise about all the things that have gone on and, and all the questions that they have about their bank account and all the things they're confused about, uh, which on the other side is, is sort of utterly impossible for these systems to, you know, to work with very effectively. So, so we've got to get good at helping people understand how to use these systems for sure. And I, and I think that's a mistake that a lot of businesses make right out of the gate is they go and they go and they want to build up a conversational AI or, or a, you know, a chatting system that's based on conversational AI. Uh, and they don't think about the orientation of their customers. What can this system do for me? How should I expect it to behave? Sometimes, you know, there's lots of implicit and explicit ways to, to give cues like that. But the fact is you got to have a plan for doing that. Otherwise your customers are going to show up. And, it, you know, as I said, the landscape's uneven enough that they're just going to make their best guess but that may have very little to do with what, what your actual intent is as a business. Yeah. And can you walk us through, you know, after all, it's a technology podcast. So maybe some of the technology behind the scenes, uh, what does it take to uh, teach such an algorithm to speak to uh, an, or to reply to, you know, not the, the, the yeah. guy that is shouting at him, billing, billing, what's the bill, you know, something more <laughs> complex. Yeah. So, uh, well, as I said, there's two pieces to talk about. There's the, the natural language understanding piece, and then there's, you know, really the, the dialogue handling itself. And, and the dialogue handling is relatively simpler, but, but I can talk about some of the advancements we're making and, and some of the tools we have to make them at live person that, that, you know, keep me coming to work every day excited. But let me get there in a second. You know, first of all, the, as I mentioned before, so natural language understanding's job is to, is to read a, you know, a, a read or listen to a, a statement by a person and then break it down into some structured piece of information that can be passed on to others. Uh, some other system is going to do something useful with it. So I want to, you know, buy a ticket to Maryland this weekend or to fly to Maryland this weekend, right? The, the natural language understanding system is going to read a, hopefully read a statement like that and say like, okay, like the intent here is for this, this person wants to, you know, book a flight and I already know where they want to go. They want to go into, um, you know, they want to go to Maryland and I already know kind of close to when they want to go. They want to go this weekend. So, so the system's got to go and make um, the structured information. There's of course, then you can see already like two or three things the system doesn't know and a bunch of dialogue handling is going to have to happen downstream. But before getting to that, you know, the, the state of the art, there, there are different ways you can handle this, right? So, so you can go, you know, in an olden times, 
you know, you would go and build regular expressions or uh, various patterns that you want these statements to match. And you'd go and kind of look for these patterns and say, did they say flight? Okay. Did they say, I want to, maybe that means they want to book a flight, right? So, so you could think about trying to establish a set of rules that would help you parse the language or parse the expression and try and get to that correct intent. But even in the one that I just said, it's actually very challenging to go and construct all those regular expressions and construct all those rules and, and get that to work. You know, it works well in very simple cases when people tend to say the same thing in exactly the same way or in a small variation, a small sort of variable number of ways. But by and large, one of the great things about language is how expressive and flexible it is. And as humans, we use that to the utmost extent. So I will say things that, you know, you and I could be saying the exact same thing in very, very different language. Uh, and with lots of other words in between that when you and I listen to each other, we have no problem filtering out or, or sort of keeping track of the through line of the statement. So a, a system like regular expressions, right, does not allow you to take advantage of that flexibility of language. And it essentially, you know, puts you, it, it makes a conversational system more like a, more like a search engine, really. And so the, of course, the industry has evolved beyond that, right? And, uh, you know, one major advance in natural language understanding really came you know, this is more like eight or 10 years ago now, uh, when we started to take words and form them into big vectorized sets of numbers, right? So, you know, prior to this, you could either do expression matching or you could do kind of a, you know, you could build machine learn models out of, you know, bags of words, we would call them, or bags of n-grams. Maybe I should say a, a bit about that first. So your, your next level of complexity up from expression matching is like a, you might call it like an n-gram model that is a common common way to refer to it. And essentially, it's a way of saying like, hey, I don't know the exact expression I want to match, but I do know some key features and, and pairs of words or triplets of words or single words that are important. Let me go put those in like a classic machine learning algorithm, like a, like a linear model or a decision tree or, you know, some more complex nonlinear model or whatever, uh, and then have it try and make a decision about whether or not this person is trying to book a flight, right? So this was, and this was invoked for a long time. It really, that started to change, as I mentioned, around eight or 10 years ago, when we started to learn ways to vectorize numbers, or sorry, vectorize words. And there's a couple of reasons why that advancement was really pivotal, right? On the one hand, the way you vectorize these words is by looking at a, like a big corpus of text, right? Just a, a whole bunch of text where you find words and learning about the words based on where they show up in context. So the sort of seminal paper on this 10-ish years ago, 12-ish years ago now, I forget the date off the top of my head, was um, sort, of, sort of the Word2Vec algorithm. And what Word2Vec did is it asked a simple question, like, let me, pull some, let me pull this word out and let me build a model that can try and predict what word goes in the blank. Or alternatively, let me pull the context out and let me build a model that tries to predict what, what words go around this word. Mm -hmm. If you do that, and a, and a little bit of math, mathematical manipulation on top of it, you end up with this, you know, set of numbers that represents the word. And instead of representing, you know, just a single arbitrary word with no relation to any other words, it actually has semantic meaning. So this, this set of numbers will be very mathematically close to another set of numbers that represents a very similar word. So, you know, eat and ate, buy and bought, these will end up nearby each other in this in this vector representation and in fact the way those vectors different differ from each other has meaning too so 
you can have male and female. You can you can you can do operations on the numbers and turn a word from gender male to gender female, more or less. So this was a, an amazing advance, right? And it was sort of it sort of set the stage for where the field started to go. So this is a big deal because uh, now you can not only do you have um, uh, the ability to do math on these things and to represent them in a more convenient way for computers, but you also have semantic meaning in the mathematics, and you can build models on top of that on top of those numbers, right? Where you, now I take those vectors and numbers, I put those as an input to another model and it can learn how to read those signs. And, and there's, there's a lot more meaning packed in it. And fundamentally that's just because, or not just, but fundamentally that is partially because when you form these vector representations, you did it by looking at lots and lots of text. So you got to know how language, the model got to know how language worked in a simple, but very uh, important and flexible way. Now, if you fast forward to now and you go to a model like, like a GPT-3 or a BERT or one of these big language models that's out there, these models are trained, they operate fundamentally on very similar, similar principles. Now, the, of course, the algorithms are quite different now, um, and there's, there's a lot more sophistication in how, in how you use this giant corpus of text to develop a way of representing these words. But fundamentally, the, the advance is that you have smart, now that we're looking at all that text, and that we have smarter and smarter ways to do this. So now when you want to go and do an embedding, you know, or, or a, a vector space representation of words, you wouldn't go and use the word Tevec anymore, but you would use something like, you know, Google's Elmo or, or you know, some other algorithm of your own devising and start to build models on top of that. And, and the best systems these days use some of these big, you know, major corpus trained models to do think, to go back to this, this statement about, hey, I want to book a flight to Maryland this weekend and uh, get very good at tagging, like, okay, there's an entity called Maryland in here. Okay, there's a, a time frame reference that's this weekend. Okay, I can see the intent. So this foundation is much, much stronger. Now, now to be clear, though, even though that foundation is, has come a long way, if you want to go train a chatbot or some live system to recognize 10, 50, 100 different user intents and hundreds or thousands of entities that might vary those intents, that's still not easy to do. Uh, and it's still very easy to do poorly. Uh, and, and I think the, the tools that are out in the marketplace that help you do that um, don't help you enough. So one of the things we focus on a live person is how to make your ability to create this net, like, like really how to help you as a, as a business user or as a technologist working for a brand uh, build a system that can recognize very complex, you know, aspects or very complex utterances or statements, I should say, with like lots of different aspects to them with our, you know, with our tools. Uh, so, so that's a, a big goal of ours. And I think it's one of these problems that, you know, if you read the academic literature, you'll see things like, well, LU is basically solved, right? And, and that's a, but that's a very constrained you know, set of benchmarks and, you know, set of problems that is motivating that statement, right? When you go into a real, you really go into the wild and you try and build one of these systems that understands what real people really want to do with it in a business context. And you find that it's, you know, we have great tools and we have a great foundation there, but it's far from solved. So that's kind of one piece of this puzzle. Uh, we talk about dialogue too. I mean, there's comparatively less to say about dialogue in some ways. Um, I mean, there's a lot to say on the research side, uh, and there are a number of different paradigms for dialogue management that have arisen in research. But I think the kind of the defining 
one defining characteristic of dialogue handling is that very few, if any of those, have made it into a production context in the real world. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But probably one of the main ones is that, you know, and this is probably, I'm speaking more from the point of view of like goal-oriented dialogues, like when, when you're trying to talk to a computer to solve a problem. Uh, one of the main reasons for that is, is pretty simple. It's just that like there are boundaries on what I can let the system do, right? If I'm, if I'm running a system that's, that's trying to help you, you know, manipulate your financial assets in your bank accounts, right? Move money from your checking to your savings or move money into an investment account or whatever it is that you want to do with it, that system can't get it wrong, right? It really can't make a mistake. It can't decide to move $10,000 when I want to move 100. It can't decide to move the money in the wrong way. Uh, it can't tell me information that it's not allowed to tell me. And, and so if we try and try and take, you know, sort of a, a classic machine learning framework around a problem like this, you know, which it might look something like, you know, let, let's, let's make this what we call a reinforcement learning problem. Let's have users try and use this thing to solve their problems. And then they'll give it feedback when it fails. And then, you know, they'll, you know, that, that, that's how this system will learn. Right? And that's, you know, this reinforce, reinforcement paradigm is how you teach computers to play games, right? This is, I mean, there are other ways to do it too, but, but if you want to go look at, you know, like a great, a great Go playing program or chess or something, yeah. right? It's a very common uh, way to solve the problem. And, and it's great in that context because what's the worst thing that happens? You lose the game, right? And you can have the, and the rules of the game are very finite, right? Even, even a big game like Go, like doesn't have very many rules. There's lots of configurations the board can take. But there aren't many choices you can make in that. Put a stone on this square, put a stone on that square. Or chess, you know, I've got a bunch of different pieces and they move a certain way. That's a, that's a pretty simple space of like actions that you can go and take. When you compare solving that problem to solving the problem of dialogue, it's not even close, right? Because I can say anything I want to you. You can say anything you want to me. You know, you're not limited to move the knight in the L shape, right? You can put whatever words together in whatever formulation you want. And I can understand you know, a, a, a shocking variety of versions of that, however you do it. Uh, in mathematical language, we say this is, you know, language is an infinite dimensional vector space. That just means you can keep keep adding complexity to this, to any object in the space, and, and it's still valid, right? So I can keep making my sentence longer, and it's still valid. Right? Now another sentence on, right? I, I'm not limited. And so that's a huge problem, when you're trying to teach a machine, you know, that, that face space is so broad when you're trying to teach a machine to solve problems with those kind of inputs, you know, first of all, the machine can't be wrong. And second of all, it's going to take, you know, forever and a day to train this thing uh, because you've got such a variety of, of what could go in. Now, this is where the NLU advances start begin to help out, we think, but now we're in territory that, you know, that's, that's really, uh, you know, I would say not live in production environments today, but the better job we do with the representation of the concepts from uh, natural language, you know, in, in this numerical form, the better job we can do with, you know, the simpler we can kind of, the easier we can kind of sort of make it on the dialogue engine. But there's weird trade-offs there too, because if you, you know, if, you're, if your dialogue system is um, you know going to try and listen to this numerical representation directly? You'll create a very black box system that you won't know how to stop it from making wrong decisions, right? If it's just kind of 
text comes in, gets turned into numbers, the numbers get manipulated by this big machine learned deep learning model, and then out comes an action. And you don't have a lot more segmentation against the problem than that, then you know, this kind of end-to-end system is really challenging to debug and there could be real problems. And that's because there's a node in a neural network somewhere that had an 0.17 in it instead of an 0.14, right? So, so you'll never find that. So you can't architect these systems you know, that way in the real world, uh, as much fun as it would be and as intellectually interesting as those systems are. So r- really, you got to find some way to structure what you understand that's finite enough that you can then go train a system and give it feedback and put guardrails around it so that it doesn't screw up in the wrong way. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of like real world, you got to do X and you got to do Y and only if this, you know, kind of legs in that logic chain. You're training your, uh, your algorithms, you know, more and more as, as time goes by, but mm-hmm. what about the data itself? What beside the, you know, train the, the, the algorithm, what, what kind of data you're pulling out of dialogues and conversations? Yeah. I mean, so you could think about a company like a, like a video game company versus like a hardware company and ask yourself, like, how differently do people speak in those two contexts? Right. There's a lot of very specific vocabulary when people are gaming together versus a lot of very specific vocabulary to describe a garden hose yep. or something more complex. So one of the value, like some of the value of the data that we have is that we can learn uh, about these different subdomains of language uh, with it. Right. And one of the key problems that we focus on is, you know, how different Does your conversational model have to be from your neighbors if you're a hardware store and your neighbor is you know an airline? And, and the answer is a little different. You know we, we see quite a bit of difference in performance for some of these models when they're learned on in-domain data. But the conversational data, I think, teaches us, you know it, one of the things that's interesting is, is it can teach us about these within domain sort of concepts and, and ways to kind of limit the algorithms or ways to help the algorithms do better. I think the other really interesting aspect of the data we have on our platform is there are signals that come implicitly and can be made to come explicitly about the success or failure of the interaction that relate to the language. So did the customer actually end up buying the product or not is now attached to a conversation and attached to a set of uh, messages that came before that. Right? So, so that's really interesting. And, and, You know, something we can leverage in a, a commercial context quite well. So in a way, I can take all the conversation that ended up with a successful cell and then ask the algorithm to provide me what would be the perfect uh, dialogue between myself, assuming the customer starts with, you know, A, B or C. Sure. That's the North Star, right? And I think, you know, the, some of the language models, the big language models give you... Uh, You know interesting ways to try and develop like a best sales conversation in reality you know you get like nobody in the industry has a perfect like let me tell you all the things you need to say next to sell the product and and part of the reason for that is people are different they have different they have pretty different needs and, and picking up picking up all that like some of the information may not be in the conversation yet or, or maybe arising later and part of that's just it's going to take us time to develop these things but The brands that are doing this work the best in my opinion are ones that are are mixing you know model driven 
you know, systems that are that are prompting agents to say different things with a clear, you know, analytics investigation or analytics focused investigation, text analytics focused, I mean, on what's working and what's not and really putting some theory behind it. And this was the same thing that was true for us at Amazon is, you know, we, we didn't like, you know, the Amazon website isn't just a big self-optimizing machine where you just push a button. It's like sell more stuff and the model will figure it all out. Right. There's hundreds of people, like thousands of people thinking about what's causing this experience to be successful versus what's causing friction and then experimenting with that in a, in a sort of hypothesized way. And the same should the same is true for brands that are working with conversation, doing conversational sales, right? You want to go and build that customer understanding. You want to go build those hypotheses. You want to use that to you know really craft an agenda. We're, we're not at the place where you just turn the keys over to the machine, and we we may not be for a long time. But the better job we can do finding ways to give the machine you know bits and pieces of the problem to do that humans can use. Actually, the better job we then do training the machine to get smarter. Yeah. Right. So it is really important to give prompts to people and to see if they accept them and to learn from that or to ask people if the computer is understanding the conversation the right way when you're not sure if it is. And to feed all that annotation from an expert back into the loop, the more you, that, that data is gold. That's maybe the most valuable data we can create. And do you find cultural differences if, if you use the, the, the machine, quote unquote, when it's still English, but you speak to an English speaking person in the US versus let's say in uh, the UK or South Africa? Yeah, yeah. And it goes deeper than, than just the base language too, right? The concepts in the industries are different as well. You have different names for secret code versus PIN that tend to pervade in different industries. So, yeah. so I mean, a lot of times our focus or typically our focus is, you know, especially for our big enterprise brands, You know, it's really like we want to use the language of your customers because you have typically you have millions of conversations on our platform with your customers. And we want to train for you language models. We want to train for you natural language understanding. We want to train for you, uh, you know, the machine learning models that you need based on that data, you know, starting from a baseline, of course, but really based on on that data specifically for you. That's that's where um, that's where we find performance for a variety of applications really being the strongest. Got you. Now, do you feel, you know, taking like a bird's eye view, do you feel there are risks into using and utilizing such a technology as it matures? Of course, uh, there are huge risks. I mean, and, and life person cares very deeply about these risks. I think you don't have to go far back. There's a bunch of examples, but like one of everyone's favorite examples is the Microsoft Taybot that, you know, quickly learned through Twitter to say all sorts of sexist and racist things. Um, this is maybe six or eight years ago now. Um, and that was a sort of attempt to, and, and no knock on, on Microsoft, you know, it's, this would have happened no matter who, who did this, but, but um, you know, when you put a system in the wild that can learn from its users, it's going to learn what its users teach it. And so the more, you know, the more systems look kind of like that, the, the, the greater the risk that, you know, they can be misused by their own users. But even if you don't do that, uh, even if you, you know, work on kind of on the side, there's all sorts of, uh, and work with data that, you know, and don't give the consumers the keys to the, the model, so to speak. There's all sorts of data out there that you can draw from. And that data is generated in, you know, in biased ways. 
Now, I'll just kind of hypothesize about some examples to kind of make the point. I'm not talking about any specific examples that, that we've come across or anything. But, um, you know, if you're trying to decide who should be offered uh, a benefit, let's say you're a bank and you're trying to decide who should be offered more lenience if their account gets overdrawn. And then you ask, like, you, you might be tempted to solve the problem in the following way. You would say, hey, okay, cool. Like, let me go look at all the conversations with people where they've had an overdraft of the account and then go and look at, like, later on, like, did they, did they do better? Um, did they make more money? Did they become a better customer in the long run? Right? It's a very reasonable approach to solving this problem. And then let me build a machine learning model that can infer between those two, you know, between the conversation and the endpoint. That sounds great. But it very well would be very likely that a model like that would inherit biases around the, you know, the gender, around the um, ethnicity, around the socioeconomic status of the person talking, right? Because you know the outcomes aren't equal for everyone, right? We we do there 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 are elements of you know privilege in people's lives, like that's a real thing. But if you train a model to look for those things, right now all of a sudden you're training a model to you know, to accelerate and, and to create like a kind of rich get richer scenario, uh, which is absolutely dangerous. Uh, and, you know, we see this in image recognition as well. They're, you know, models that, that really don't do a good job recognizing black people, right? These are, you know, these are real problems that are starting to come to life anywhere you find AI. Uh, and and they're, they're very important to live persons a company. You know, one of our, our, uh, our goals this year is to really build our methodology for testing the input models that come into us for bias, testing the way that we use those models for bias for, for ourselves, and really starting to kind of automate the whole process. So we're seeing, you know, how that, you know, if that, and, and if so, how that comes to life uh, in the systems that we build. And it's, it's nothing more than a product of the fact that these things are made by humans. We all run our days with bias, right? You couldn't get by in the world without some bias. Uh, the question is just, you know, in what ways is technology going to accelerate this? And in which, what ways do we not want it to? And how do we resist the ways that we don't want it to? Clear. Where do you see AI in general as an industry? Where, where is it going next? I mean, language is hot. Language and conversations are hot right now. Um, it's, I, I know this in part because, you know, because I recruit for, for a live person and there are a lot of scientists who are who are finding their way into the field, and you know, people with the the really strong backgrounds from universities and big groups are are extremely hard to come by. So, so I think that's a frontier. But for me, I think that's going to be a frontier that's going to kind of take us a while for the real world real world applications to to live up to some of the hype that that we expect. I think that as we've discussed before, some of the areas about dialogue are going to be. Uh, really challenging to industrialize, and, and it'll take some time to figure out how to get that done. Uh, and I think we'll probably see a proliferation of new types of experiences that kind of work around that, right? So, what should the what should the web page of the future look like? You know, it, it it probably should be a lot more conversational. How do you make those conversations implicit in in that structure rather than? You know, just just it confined to one corner of of the page where you talk to an agent or talk to a chatbot or something. You know, I think the more you sort of embed conversation in context, the more you can use those contextual clues to to put the guardrails on so the systems don't make bad choices, and, and the better you can kind of leverage AI in a little bit of a of a narrowed environment. 
So I think, you know, in the immediate short term, like, I think you'll continue to see a lot of hype and excitement around how conversational is going to go. And then I think you'll see this like nice refinement of, you know, how, how that, like how that really comes to life in, you know, in sort of narrowed context that, that then becomes extremely useful and, and kind of compelling and kind of delightful for customers. As we speak about, you know, macro level trends, do you see a change in the way we communicate in the sense that the younger generation are using more, you know, emojis and, and, and are moving into different ways of uh, conversation and then, you know, less speaking and more uh, sign languages? Yeah, it's funny. I was, it's a little related to your question. I was listening to a radio program yesterday or like a commercial and it was like a, it was like from the 1950s and there was, or 60s maybe, and there was, there was someone who was a, uh, you know, kind of a, a regular person, you know, regular guy kind of figure in the commercial. And then there was like a cool hipster kind of figure in the commercial. And the, you know, the whole joke was all the language that, you know, was coming out of the cool hipster was like completely incomprehensible. And I remember the words, they're words that kind of died off. And so I think on some level, that's the way language evolves, right? As you, you know, the younger generation starts to play with it and starts to experiment with it. And I think that's to be encouraged and to be looked at with interest. I don't think you're going to get away from words exactly in language as we use it. I think that the symbols and the, you know, the emojis and things and the, the visual based communication is a, is a really interesting augment. And in some cases, like they almost kind of sort of become words on their own. Like the, the crying laughing face is really different from a different kind of laughing face, right? It has its own significance of, of intent uh, or, or, or intensity, I guess I mean to say. Uh, about how funny you thought that statement was. So they, they kind of become their own tokens, uh, but I don't think they really ever supplant, you know, at least not what, what I'm seeing today, is supplants you know, the, the basic foundation of language because I think we, have, we don't see anything that has that level of expressivity, right? Those, you, know, you can't string a set of emojis together and really tell a story, right? Try and use a set of emojis to, to tell me where you walk your dog and where you bought its dog food, right? Like you, there just isn't that level of specificity there. And now maybe you could go show someone a video, but man, it sure would be a lot quicker if I just said, Hey, I walked down the, down the street over there and I went to Petco. It's like two blocks that way. Right. Done. I don't need to, I don't need to kind of show you the whole video. So, so I think for me, I don't think language is any, in any real danger in that sense, any more than I think the command line is in, in real danger. It's just a powerful medium to say, like put, whatever tokens you want here and allow those tokens to have meaning uh, that we all agree on. But I do think it creates an interesting dynamic and, you know, it, it, there's like a fun shorthand. And ultimately I think the problem emojis are solving maybe more than anything else is the fact that they occur in a context where there's not a lot of nonverbal communication, right? And, and you and I, or, or when you meet someone in person, there's so many cues that we give each other when we communicate that aren't possible in a text environment. So, well, you need to see my, my, uh, my kids, you know, typing the, the speed of, uh, emojis they can shoot to one another. You know, they, they don't need any signs. They can sit one <laughs> in front of yeah, the other. I, and they like, instead of, you know, speaking, they will <laughs> WhatsApp each other <laughs> and tweet. Yeah. I, my kids took to it too. It really surprised me how quickly, uh, and you know, they're, the other thing is they do a lot of recording of their own voices instead of typing. You know, my, I have younger kids. They're, they were, this is when they were six. Now they're seven. 
And, you know, I had to think about that for me. It's like, what, how do I, how do I feel about that? And in the end, for me, I felt good about it because, because even though it's a shortcut, you know, for now, and they're not, they're not always experiencing the typing and the letters, it's a shortcut that's convenient for them and creates this kind of joy about communication for them. And I, and I have this kind of feeling and this assumption baked in that they're going to learn those skills as they go along because that they'll need them to inhabit the world in a lot of different ways. So, so I'm sort of patient with them. I'm like, well, that's going to come. And, and, and they, they more or less are. And I like that the technology is giving them these like funny little options that, you know, at least I growing up never had that can just create joy, right? Because ultimately the learning process, right? The growing process as a human, you want to be feeling that joy and that sense of like, I'm in the right place doing the thing I most want to be doing. That's when your mind's the most open, the most active. That's when you learn the best. Uh, so kind of want that for the kids too. If emojis are going to give them that, then I'm in. Now we are reaching almost the end and I still have a few uh, personal questions for you. So with your permission, sure. you mentioned at the beginning that you studied classical English. And uh, I also read somewhere that you uh, practice classical singing. So can you share a yes. bit about this, uh, which obviously doesn't resonate well with a physics PhD. So can you... <laughs> well, there is, you know, there is the music and math connection. And I do see that a lot, actually. When one of the markers that I hire for, I'll answer your question, but just for briefly. One of the markers that I hire for, you know, especially in science leaders, you know, and I'll hire people that aren't like this. It's not a hard and fast rule, but if they have a, you know, a softer side interest, and a lot of times it's music or art or something like that, yeah. uh, it bespeaks someone who's facile on a lot of different fronts and like very open-minded and has a certain kind of, you know, intuitive understanding for the work that allows them to explain it really well to people who are not experts. So there definitely, there's some people like that out there, but I, I also understand it is a little weird. Yeah. I mean, look, I fell in love with classical music when I was probably 15, 14 or so. Uh, I watched my brother sing the Messiah in, you know, he had a solo in the, in the high school concert. And I, you know, part of it was like, I thought my brother was really cool and I wanted to be like him. And there he was, you know, kind of, kind of mini famous for a second. And part of it was, I thought the music was just really compelling. Right. And so, so I kind of followed that for a few years and, you know, went to a conservatory of music and was, was really, was into it. But, but I, you know, it, it, same thing happened with physics. I got to a point at where I was doing it and I was like, I see where this is going. And I wasn't sure for me if it was exactly the place I wanted to go, right? It, it seemed a little narrow and it seemed, um, it seemed like success was this very specific uh, path in like the opera singing world, right? You go and you, you sing, you know, you sing in these, in these cities and maybe you get a job in this particular way and then maybe you teach singing and not that that's not interesting or meaningful or valuable or valid, like that's great. But, but I always kind of like in the back of my mind, I was like, well, I want something where I actually don't quite know where it's going a little bit more. So that led me to, you know, that one of my other thing, one of the other things that I loved, you know, in college was English literature. So I, I, you know, had already kind of started taking some classes in that. And, and I was taking some math classes on the side too, because I always, always loved that too. And I kind of fell downhill into an English degree and, you know, did, did a bunch of writing as an undergraduate about the language of English or sorry, the language of literature and the language of mathematics. I've always been really fascinated by books that kind of combine the two. Like at the time it was like Gertle Escher Bach was a big thing. And I love, you know, fiction by like people like Neil Stevenson or really kind of get, get kind of mathy in the books. But, the, you know, I went and taught high school or sorry, junior high after school, right? Because you go, come up with an English degree. What do you do? Um, and so, you know, I worked in tech for a minute, but then I, I went, moved to San Francisco and I taught middle school math and science because I did have the minor in math. 
And as I was doing that, which is a very meaningful and difficult, it's the hardest job I've ever done. Like I've been scientist in National Lab and, you know, I've got this job at Live Person. I've worked for Amazon and, you know, not even close. The hardest job I've ever had is being a middle school, seventh grade math and science teacher. More stress, more work, more intensity. Like it's a, it's just, you got to be a, a, like a really special person to do that job well and, and to do it for a long time. So I started taking, you know, career development classes while I was doing that. And it just, it reminded me of how much I missed math, right? Because it was like, well, let's learn more math so you can teach the math better to the kids kind of stuff. And, and I just was like, man, I got to go back and do this. I've been, I've been putting it off or I've been kind of ignoring that side of my personality for the last eight, 10 years. Uh, I got to go. So I went and got a master's in math at SF State, which I was really glad for the California educational system. I could go do that for, it was like 800 bucks a semester to go get a master's in math. And I had to figure out how to, how to fund myself, but I didn't have to figure out how to fund school. That, that was awesome. And it, it's disappearing. And I'm sad about that, at least in this country. And that led me to physics. And then physics led me to the lab. And then that led me to statistics. And that was just kind of, now the ball starting to roll down this like other hill. But for me, I'm really glad about it. It, it. Like in the end, I think all these experiences come together really well. The role I have at Live Person now is, you know, part executive, you know, part of the business, working with the salespeople, also working with my team, also building technology, also working with the scientists. You need to speak a lot of different languages. You need to understand, really, you need to understand a lot of different perspectives. And you need to, first and foremost, agree that all those perspectives are valid and that they have something meaningful to add to the overall picture. And I think for me, like having the range of experiences in the past, just it sets me up with this like deep seated belief that there's like lots of pretty different, but equally meaningful ways to look at a situation. And I think that's, it's very important in a business context. Yep. You're right. So it's the end of the day. You just submitted like uh, three new papers. Uh, you've met the salespeople, you met the business people, uh, you met your team, you're coming back home. How do you unwind yourself? So the last few years I've tried to get, I'm trying to go deeper with a physical activity that's hard and forces me to learn to be athletic as a, as a, let's say generously middle-aged man, right? I've always been a little bit, maybe I had a little bit of an athletic side, but, but, but pretty uncoordinated as a kid, you know, really the typical tall guy with the gawky limbs. But I like to do this stuff in my life. I like to find things that are really hard and I like to try and get good at them and usually fail at getting great, but learn a lot along the way. And so it was yoga for a while. Now it's golf. I grew up playing that with my dad. So it's a, you know, it's a, it's a sport I'm almost embarrassed or a game I'm almost embarrassed to play because it's such a like, you know, the exclusive country clubby kind of thing, which is not how I do it. I like to, I like to do it uh, in a, you know, music, municipal environment with like a bunch of guys from, from the town. It's a good way to meet people I wouldn't normally meet. But yeah, so I'm kind of like, I got this little dedication to go and figure out how to do this activity and like keep take control of my body, take control of my mind. And, and it really does help me at the end of the day, kind of zone out and get out of the, this very analytical and very verbal headspace and just get into, you know, being a human in space, hitting a ball. It's kind of nice. Joe, it was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, mine too. I, I enjoyed your questions a lot. So um, thank you so much for your time today. Sure. And uh, see you soon. Face to face, I hope. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to Future of Tech. If you like what you heard and want more, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. 
And if you have any comments or questions, feel free to write to our host, Avishai Sharlin, directly on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.